each year at this time in January, the subject in our readings, the late Elphorus, set for us, the subject given to us is the baptism of Jesus. And as I look back in my records, I've over the years preached on it lots and lots of times. There's so much in this story, so much to learn, so many lessons to draw out. There's a question of why did Jesus need to be baptized? Why was he so keen about it? And John's baptism wasn't the baptism that we have today. It wasn't about initiation into the church family, which is what ours is. It was just a baptism of repentance. And wasn't Jesus perfect one so he had nothing to repent of? So why did he need to be baptized? There's one question. There's a lesson about Jesus wanting to identify with the people he'd come to save, wanting to go through what they've gone through and we need to go through. And then there's a lesson about the intervention of God, about the kingdom of God breaking through into the kingdom of this world uh, as the voice came from heaven uh, and the Holy Spirit appeared looking like a dove as we just read. And so lots and lots of lessons that we can learn. But today I didn't speak on any of them because I decided that I would say something that has really struck me over the last few years from this account. Just one point. If you're someone who likes traditional three-point sermon, you're going to be disappointed this morning. Because there's only one. I've got one point, but it is ever so, ever so important. And I believe that it's something that God wants us really to take in. Over the years, I've pondered over the words that came from heaven. Those words that say, and this is a slightly different uh, translation from the one that Joe read moment ago. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The first bit I could understand, you're my son whom I love. Yeah, straightforward. That's just something that any good father would reasonably say to a child. But then that fox thing was the next bit. With you I'm well pleased. What, I reasoned for many years, was the father so pleased with? Because he hasn't done anything yet. Jesus hasn't begun his ministry yet. This is the very beginning of his public life. He hasn't healed anyone yet. He hasn't raised anybody from the dead yet. He hasn't done any teaching. He hasn't turned water into wine yet. He hasn't called for the miraculous he hasn't fed 5,000 people with five bread rolls and a couple of sardines. He hasn't done any of that stuff. He hasn't even chosen his disciples yet or wrestled with the devil in the desert. He hasn't done any of it yet. So why does the father make such a great point of saying how pleased he is with his son? All he's done, as far as we know, He's been a good pupil in the rabbinical school in Nazareth. He learned his stuff so that he could take his bar mitzvah when he was 12 years old. We know that much. And we know that he assisted Joseph in the family business. We don't even know if he was a good carpenter. Could he sort straight? 
Could we use a chisel without splitting the wood? Yeah, I know I'm judging everybody else by myself here. But we just don't know. We haven't done anything. And this puzzled me for many years until eventually it dawned on me. It takes me a little while, you know, I'm not ever, ever so shut up, you know. It finally dawned on me, you can't actually separate the two halves of that verse. The Father's being pleased with Jesus <laughs> is because he is his beloved son. You know, that's the Father's approval of Jesus depends not on what Jesus may have done or not done, but upon who the Father says he is. And that's the crucial point. It's so simple, but the implications are absolutely mind-blowing. And I believe one of the most liberating facts in the whole of the Christmas of the Christian and the Christmas message that I don't think you often hear preached. If it was true for Jesus, God's only gospel son, that his love and acceptance depended not on achievement but upon the Father's statement of who he is, then the same is true for us as his adopted children. But that runs totally against our whole modern Western culture. We live in a world where we are constantly called upon to achieve, aren't we? Especially in the world of work, and to some extent that's quite right. When we're at work, we need to achieve, to give our employer value for money. That's right, we should be diligent and work hard and do our best, of course. But our society goes a lot further than that. Our society says that our value is in relation to that achievement. And that's where it goes wrong. That our value depends on our achievement. To put it another way, God created us as human beings we turned ourselves into human doings. Yeah? It's true, isn't it? That's what is wrong. How often have you found when you're first introduced to someone, you're introduced in terms of what you do for a living? This is John, he's an accountant. This is Mary, she's a teacher. And so on. Even if we're not introduced like that, and we get into a conversation with somebody that we've met for the first time and we don't have met or don't already know, the question usually comes up quite early in the conversation, what do you do? What do you do? Why does it matter? It matters because our society says that our value depends on it. We like to put people in little boxes, pigeonholes, according to what they do, what they achieve. <coughs> Labeled by how we earn our living. And we are in our society, we are uncomfortable if we haven't got that information. But God's way is different. God's value, God values us 
not for what we achieve or what we do, but for who we are. And that's our world of difference. That's the same as saying what he has made us, for whom he has made us to be. Or who he says we are. If we've given our lives to God, or in other words, if we're real Christians, then God says we are his beautiful, beloved children. That's true of you, and it's true of me. His beautiful, beloved children. He created each one of us just because he wanted an object for his love. Can you believe that? That's a thought. The reason God created you was so that he could have you there to love. That's why you're on this planet, and that's why I'm here. That's why we exist. And he also created each one a little different from the others. Nobody in the world quite like you. Nobody in the world quite like me either. Why? Because he wanted a beautiful variety in his wonderful world. And you, and the way you are, are simply because God decided his world needed just one of you in it. Does that blow your mind? That blows my mind. He says, you are beautiful. And that's got nothing to do with what you look like. Nothing to do with what you look like. It's far deeper than the superficial physical beauty that the world judges us. Judges about what you are. Or more often these days, it's the media or the face cream manufacturers. Now they do that. Each one, God says, is a beautiful person. That's you. And that's me. How many people do you know who are discontent with the way they look? If that weren't true, the beauty industry would go bust. Who, how many do you know who are perfectly happy with the way they look? Well, why not? It's not because God got it wrong. He's the divine creator. And when people are discontent with how they look, are they not criticizing God and saying he didn't know what he was doing? Really created them. Because we don't somehow measure up to the arbitrary standard that our culture and society have sometime, somehow decreed it is the standard for what is beautiful and what isn't. How dare our society do that? Actually, if we say someone isn't beautiful, then we are suggesting that God got it wrong in his heavenly design studio. Now sometimes, of course, how people are, either inside or outside, has been distorted by being part of that beautiful world that's been damaged and broken by evil over centuries. That's a cycle. But whatever ever has happened to us, nothing can ever rob us of the beauty and the essential dignity God has given us as his wonderful creation and who he says we are. 
The bottom line of all this is that for you and me, just the same as for Jesus on the day of baptism, God's love for us depends not on what we achieve, but on who he says we are. That's what it's about. Who we are is a combination of who he created us to be in the first place and the person we become when we're joined to Jesus and we give our lives to him. That's who we are. It's a combination of those two things about how we birth. That doesn't mean that we should stop doing our best. Of course, only the best is ever worthy of it. But our acceptability to God doesn't depend on it. You know, there's an old saying, you've probably heard it before, but good to be reminded. There's nothing in the world you can ever do that will make God love you anymore. Because he loves you completely already. And there's nothing in the world that you can ever do that will make you love you any less. Things we do may well hurt you. They do. But they don't change his love for us. He can never make him love us anymore. He can never do anything to make him love us any less. I hope you feel a great sense of relief about that, actually. Because it's so liberating. It sets us free. How wonderful is that? And so, as I close, I come back to the verse with which we began. These were words spoken from heaven, not man's words. Words spoken from heaven of Jesus at his baptism, but equally true for you and for me if we go our lives to him. You are my child, whom I love. With you, I am not just pleased, but well pleased. Delighted. God delights in you, and he delights in me. Amen. Sorry, can you speak a bit louder, Michael? I'm getting a bit hard hearing these days. Thank you, thank you for the name of God, my people. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to come to our prayers now. And we're going to begin with some prayers with a response, which is on the screen there. We pray to God to fill us with His Spirit. Lord, come to bless us. Fill us with your Spirit. Generous God, we thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that we may be strengthened to serve you better. Lord, come to bless us. Fill us with your Spirit. We thank you for the wisdom of your Holy Spirit. We ask you to make us wise to understand your will. Lord, come to bless us. Fill us with your spirit. We thank you for the peace of your Holy Spirit. We ask you to keep us confident of your love 
wherever you call us, Lord, come to bless us. Fill us with your spirit. We thank you for the healing of your Holy Spirit. We ask you to bring reconciliation and wholeness where there is division, sickness, and sorrow. And here we particularly remember all those who are affected by COVID at the moment, especially Hayden and Rachel and any others known to us. Let's remember them in a moment of silence. Lord, come to bless us. Fill us with your spirit. We thank you for the gifts of your Holy Spirit. We ask you to equip us for the work which you have given us. Lord, come to bless us. Fill us with your spirit. We thank you for the fruit of your Holy Spirit. We ask you to reveal in our lives the love of Jesus. Lord, come to bless us. Fill us with your spirit. We thank you for the breath of your Holy Spirit, given by the risen Lord. We ask you to keep the whole church living and departed in the joy of eternal love. Lord, come to bless us. Fill us with your spirit. Generous God, you sent your Holy Spirit upon your Messiah at the river Jordan and upon the disciples in the upper room. Let your mercy fill us with your Spirit. Hear our prayer and make us one in heart and mind to serve you with joy forever. Amen. Amen.